today's scripture reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Again, that's from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. If you don't have a Bible with you, um, you can check the seat in front and turn the Bible to page 816. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and saw, and he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. The parable of the Good Samaritan as we know it is widely known, and um, this recognized story is quoted not just on pulpits on Sundays, but even by public speakers. I think perhaps this might be one, if not the best well-known parable of uh, Jesus today in church and outside the walls of the church. This familiar Good Samaritan when used, it's a compliment. Um, we generally uh, use it to refer to someone who showed kindness and mercy and compassion in caring for someone in need. Um, although the word good Samaritan actually doesn't come up in the Jesus story here, uh, we even have good Samaritan laws that protect roadside first aiders from litigation. And churches and Nonprofit agencies can use it without needing to explain too much. I do believe that we do need to show compassion and care 
and meet the pe people's need, those who are poor. But believe it or not, the primary meaning of the parable here is not about that. This is perhaps one of the most misunderstood parable that we might be so familiar with. I've heard enough of social gospel presentations, people referencing going through the parable of the Good Samaritan to show, you know what, the essence of Christianity is really not about doctrine, but it's about showing compassion. But nothing could be further from the truth. So let's look at this familiar parable of Jesus today. Now the parable starts um, in verse 25 where a lawyer stands up before Jesus to test him and asks, addressing him as a teacher and asks, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this man is a lawyer, not a lawyer in a sense who works professionally, vocation, vocationally to uh, feed his family, but an expert in knowing, interpreting the Torah, the Hebrew Bible. He's like a lawyer, theologian, lawyer, Bible teacher. Um, not only is he a legal expert, he's a religious figure. The text says he stood up to test Jesus. Usually teachers would sit and students would listen. And when they had a question, they would stand up out of respect. Uh, we talked about what a session is, right? It's a seat. And um, out of pu public courtesy, he stands up to ask Jesus a question, but we know that his motives are not pure or sincere. His motives are uh, malicious. Um, he isn't seeking the truth. And like many religious scribes and lawyers who also attempted to trap Jesus, to condemn him, to, to fabricate or to come up with reasons to have him ultimately executed, this man wasn't that different. However, there were other religious leaders like Nicodemus, who, a Pharisee, came at night and asked the same question. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to get into that path to have right relationship with God that will guarantee that I will be in God's presence forever? This is the most important question that any one of us can ask. It is the right question to ask. And he is asking the right person. Right question to right person. But still with wrong motive. Have you asked this question? How can I be accepted by God? Are you asking this question? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? New Testament indicates that because it's repeated and replete with this question again and again. It's an important question that all of us should be asking and answering. When asked with a question, Jesus responds with not an answer, but more questions. I love to answer questions with questions. I know my kids at home and kids at church, you know who you are, hate it when I respond with a question, 
probably because you know, I'm either trying to be evasive or just make you sweat a little bit, but sometimes also because there's something else that I want you to think about. Now, Jesus is not coy or evasive. He responds with a question because he wants to reveal something about the condition of your heart, in this case with the lawyer. There is this underlying assumption that he wants to disclose and show that's not valid, that is not godly, that will make you miss the point. And he, he points out by responding, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He's pointing out, where are you going to get the answer to the question you're asking? From God's word. Now, the lawyer, this is what he does. He's very familiar with it, and he, he responds. Um, he answers by saying in verse 27, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Essentially, he's summing up. You, you love God completely, and you love your neighbor as yourself. It's a summary of the Ten Commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. And Jesus um, also, in other gospel, uh, gives the same summary too. When the lawyer is referencing these two, he's actually going back to Deuteronomy 6. That's referring to loving the Lord your God with everything that you have, completely. Whatever you have, whoever you are, in its entirety, you are to love him. And the second part, love your neighbor as yourself, is referencing Leviticus 18 and 19. But to truly love God with all our heart, all our soul, mind, and strength, to love him with everything that we are and that we have, and to love our neighbor properly, to have the same intense interest and concern as we would have ourselves who has ever loved such way, in such supremely selfless way, in such complete way? I mean, when Jesus hears, it's like, you got the right answer. But what he says afterward is far more important. You have the right answer. And he says, do it and you will live. Do it. Now, do it is repeated verse 28, and at the end of the uh, section, again in verse 37, twice the lawyer answers correctly, and Jesus' response is, then do it. Can he just do it? Like Nike says, just do it? No, actually, he can't do it, actually. Jesus' concern over the lawyer's correct answer is that he's not actually doing it. The point of the emphasis is that he's not actually doing it, and in fact, he can't actually do it, even if he tried. When the lawyer asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That word do, the form of the verb gets repeated by the guy and Jesus multiple times. What must I do? Poesis is the verb, okay? And the form of it repeats again as Jesus responds, and we'll come back to it. And when Jesus responds by saying, you've given the right answer, do this, poe, and you will live. Now, anyone who meets this sort of standard 
doesn't need grace. They've met the requirement. And if you love God with all that you have, and you, if you love your neighbor as yourself, then you don't need forgiveness. You're already in right standing with God. So do it. You know, why doesn't Jesus just say, believe in me? Well, because there's something wrong with this man's view of himself. And we see it throughout the Gospels. Because if there's no good news unless the bad news is accepted first. The man has to first be able to evaluate his condition honestly and accurately. Is there anything that we can do to gain eternal life? Well, yes, the law of God offers salvation to anyone who fully satisfies its demand. If you can do it, then you are in right standing. But who is able to do it? No one. Not one. Except the sinless Son of God. Maybe in the last five minutes you're sitting down. For five minutes you haven't sinned. You're able to praise God, love him with all your mind. You're like paying attention. And like you're fighting, resisting your body to like, you know, you're giving 100%. And maybe for five minutes you've been worshiping, loving him completely. But let's be honest. Even before and after When do we, when can we love the Lord our God with all that we have? Whether it be with our mind, we are often lazy with our thinking, with our soul, with our strength, and with our heart. It's essentially saying, when can we never sin? Because if you can love God this way, that means you don't sin. It's an impossible challenge. It's an impossible challenge that's designed to lead people like you and me, sinners, to seek a savior. The couple of function of God's law, one of the first one is, is to mirror a reflection to us back, uh, the perfection of God. And in seeing that, we see our sinfulness and shortcoming. Augustine writes, the law bids us as we try to fulfill its requirements and become weary in our weakness under it to know how to ask the help of grace. This lawyer, in hearing Jesus' response, he still doesn't have a humble, accurate view of self, and he's still, he's not sincere. And he desires to justify himself And what does he say? He responds to Jesus by asking, and who is my neighbor? This question of defining who is my neighbor, what is my neighborhood, is a discussion that many rabbis have struggled in Jesus' time, before and after. Um, The commandment to love your neighbor as yourself is quoted from Leviticus 19. Precisely, it's from verse 18. And the language, this Uh, neighborhood envisioned here is primarily for the citizens of Israel. But actually, when you continue in Leviticus 19, 33 through 34, um, there's room for resident aliens in the neighborhood. And this is what the Bible says. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, 
you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. So the, the neighborhood in Leviticus includes citizens, Israelites, and resident aliens in Israel. The question is always there, who is my neighbor in this time, in this place? Some would like to make that circle small and tight, others more expansive. But one thing that they all agreed, Samaritans were not included in that circle, no matter how big or small it was. So when we think about these questions that the lawyer asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life and who is my neighbor is actually intimately related and connected. Uh, you see, the lawyer's motivation in asking, he, he's asking to justify, um, you know, he, he had less issues with loving the Lord your God part. I mean, he is a lawyer who studies the Bible, and he's probably feeling pretty confident about that. But as for the neighbor part, he's not as secure because it's a harder thing and it's more visibly uh, seen. And he wants to limit, control the environment, the neighborhood, to justify himself. And that's really important to understand the parable. So how big or how small is the neighborhood? He wants to know. He didn't want to just love everybody, especially if he didn't have to love them, like people like the Samaritans. He wanted a closer circle. Again, as a diligent student, feeling good about loving the Lord part, but my guess is there's a twinge of conscience as he finds himself needing to justify before Jesus. And this need for self-justification, nothing new. I mean, we go back to the very beginning when God confronts Adam and Eve, what does Adam say? Not my fault, the woman you gave me. And when God confronts Eve, she says, she doesn't say it's my fault. No, she says, well, the serpent, he deceived me. The very beginning of salvation requires us to have right relationship with God. And we know that we are justified by someone else, not by my effort but by someone else's work, because it's God who alone can justify us. And that's the heart of the gospel. And this man, this lawyer, he doesn't get it, because he's still trying to justify himself. If he hadn't, at this point, recognized he was a sinner, man, I don't love neighbors as I love myself. And if he had asked God, help me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man, I can't love you completely. I might be better than other people, but I can't all the time. And I don't love my neighbors, especially these neighbors that I don't like. Then Jesus probably would have gone his way to explain the way to salvation, had compassion on him, as he often was to those who knew that they were sinners in desperate need of a Savior. But this man wasn't. 
he just wanted to justify himself. One scholar imagines this lawyer's reasoning. This is his imagination, perhaps what went through his mind. Are we expected to treat every man in the whole world as our neighbor and love him as ourselves? And if that is impossible, where are we to draw the line? And are we to treat outrageous sinners and vicious tyrants and blaspheming heretics as our neighbors and love them, along with all the others as ourselves? Or may we, with good common sense, take the commandment as meaning by neighbor people in our family, our street, our synagogue, or um, at a stretch, our fellow nationals, but no more. Can we take it also that our political or national enemies, by being enemies, have ceased to be our neighbors? This sort of ethnocentric attitude was very common. And when the Israelites spoke about neighbors, it really was about fellow Israelites, their covenant community, and not for people outside the neighboring nations. I want us to understand, as we think about this parable, or parables in general, but specifically this parable, um, the story is not designed to just answer the lawyer's question. The parable that he's about to give, that we are so familiar with, is to show there's something wrong about the condition of his heart. This encounter is not meant to give a summary of the core doctrine of Jesus' life and ministry. It's meant to show a deep deficiency of the lawyer's heart and that he desperately needs saving grace. He wants him to know that Jesus wants the lawyer to know that he can't do it. He cannot live the perfect life that the scriptures demand from a holy, holy, holy God. And that he has come to do it for us. God's law requires a perfect life, not just giving perfect answers. I mean, he gave the right answer, but requires living out the right answers and no human being has ever done that except Jesus Christ. Jesus does this repeatedly in telling different parables, but prophets of old have also given parables to disclose sin. For example, a familiar one that you might have is the one where David commits adultery against Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. He commits adultery, murders her husband, Uriah. And after when Bathsheba is pregnant, probably about a year later, Nathan the prophet comes and confronts David. But he doesn't come directly, but he tells a story about a man who had a ewe lamb, a little lamb. And in contrast, a great man who had all sorts of sheep, who happened to take that one ewe lamb from the other man. Nathan wasn't telling that story to David the king, 
who was living in sin so that David would become a better person. No, he told that parable to show David's sin. At the end, he says, you are the man, that man who stole that one ewe lamb. Just as Jesus here is not telling the lawyer this parable so that he would become a better person or that we would become a better neighbor. That's not the point. The point is to show him his sin. Now, when you look at the parable, it's from verse 30 to 35. Geographically, it's an image that's pretty amazing. You you move from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jerusalem is one of the highest points in Israel, if not the, at the top of Mount Sinai. And Jericho is actually at the furthest bottom part of the country. It's about 100, excuse me, 1,300 feet below sea level by the shore of the Dead Sea. So you moving from 2,700 feet above the sea level to the lowest, some 4,000 feet journey, like three quarter of a mile, and you're going from the city of God to this heathen place, you're going down and down and down away. And this is where the event takes place, the 17 mile trek. And this trek would involve caves where thieves are hiding and are going to, um, you know, attack to rob, um, etc. And it would happen again and again. Now, in Jesus' time, first century society was highly structured. Different groups could be identified in different ways. Not too different from today. But especially first century, you can differentiate people by the language they spoke, the accents they had, and the clothes they wore. So now this is a parable. So this actually didn't happen, okay? The parable is a story. But a priest back in Jesus' days would probably speak Hebrew. A peasant would likely speak Aramaic. Those who are living on the coast would be speaking in Phoenician. If you're living up in Galilee, you'll be speaking in Syriac or Greek, If you're working for the government under Rome, then you'll be speaking um, Latin. And depending on where you are, you will have a different accent. And your speech and your language would kind of help you um, identify who you are, where you're from. In addition, um, who you were meant mean you wore a certain kind of clothes. And that would reflect what kind of part of the country you're from, your economic status, and what role in society you played. So a priest would be pretty well-to-do, and most likely he would not be walking on this 17-mile trek. He would be riding an animal. Um, Most likely a Levite would be walking, and the challenges for the uh, Levite and the priest, the guys stripped naked, so they can't distinguish who this person is what ethnic heritage, what social class, can't hear him because he's almost dead and doesn't neighbor him. A priest um, went back and forth between Jerusalem and whatever town they um, lived and often maybe like two weeks in Jerusalem and serving and then coming back home for their farm work, etc. So this would be after ministering service, coming back home to his hometown. 
Now, there were strict rules about contamination, and you're not supposed to touch that body, because if you do, then you wouldn't be able to administer the services as a priest. But it just, you will be delayed. You'll have to wait out. Levite, something very similar in terms of the contamination rule. So in contrast to the priest and the Levite, you have a Samaritan who is despised by the Jews. They're considered half-breeds. Um, if you remember back in 722, the northern kingdom gets ransacked by the Assyrians. The best of them are taken away, but the worst of them are left behind. And Samaritans were basically uh, those who were left behind who married with the invaders. They were the poorest of the poor, and you know they were also mixing up their religion. So basically, Samaritans were half-breeds in terms of their genetics, ethnicity, and their religion. It was so bad that the, the Jews from the southern kingdom would come up some 150 years before this and destroy the temples that the Samaritans erected because it dishonored the temple in Jerusalem. Samaritans and Jews wouldn't do anything together. They wouldn't eat together, associate together, but it was a Samaritan. It was a Samaritan who saw, stopped, and attended while the priest and the Levite went the other way. The Bible is a bit emphatic. Uh, when the priest comes, um, he passes on the other side. There's a Greek term, anti, in the verb here. So he goes against completely on the other side, ignoring this man, and he's indifferent. The priest had zero love. He had zero love for the man and ultimately zero love for God. Because if he had truly loved God, he would remember the very words that he's been studying and speaking. He would obey and love the neighbor, the stranger, and show mercy and kindness. But he didn't. You would expect a priest who represents God and represents the people to God to love God enough to love his neighbor, but he didn't. He didn't do what was commanded. And Levite, um, someone from a tribe of Levi who assisted in the temple, so this would be kind of next level, bottom level. Um, when priests would do the work, the Levites would be the one who were assisting, um, whether in liturgy or policing the temple, to caring, um, taking care of things, including facility. They were religious people, and you would also expect, like the priest, for them to show kindness, compassion, as the word of God dictated. But they didn't either. They also went the other way. Scholars wonder why these men failed to stop and help. I mean, I've heard so many different takes on this. We don't know at the end. Is it possible that they were in a rush? Yes, but again, that's not the point because this is a hypothetical story. Is it possible that they were afraid of being ambushed? Probably, it's, it's a real possibility. Uh, most people wouldn't travel alone either. Um, is it possible that they were afraid of getting blamed for this potential murder and they don't want to get implicated? Maybe. 
Um, is it possible that the guy was already perhaps already dead and they didn't want to um, get ceremony unclean? Possibly. All these are possibilities, but Jesus doesn't tell the reason because that's not the point. The point is what? They were guilty of the sin of omission. What's the worst thing that could have happened? Either if they were in a rush, they would be late. And if they became unclean, then what? They just wouldn't be able to serve for a couple of weeks or whatever the term duration that they had to set themselves aside. But the law of God would actually require them to do what they can. And if it meant risking their life, they should have, but they didn't. They failed to love their neighbor, and they were guilty of this neglect. And the irony is they just came back from worshiping the Lord, serving God, And in contrast to the Levite and the priest, you have the Samaritan, a Samaritan, actually, a hated person who comes to that spot, sees, and felt compassion. Like a shepherd who saw the lost and had compassion. Sounds familiar? With extravagant generosity and grace, this Samaritan that they wouldn't have expected, that he probably has kind of a guttural kind of response, like, oh, what do you mean, Samaritan? He basically undoes the violence of the robbers and the neglect of the priest and the Levite. And he basically sets no limit of his neighborhood. He shows compassion. But it's not just, he doesn't end with just compassion. Oh, I feel this compassion and pity and tenderness towards a person. But he takes that step of doing mercy. He stops. He helps. He gets down his donkey. He administers first aid. He binds. He suits. He disinfects using oil and wine. He refuses to draw, okay, this is my neighborhood. No, he, he doesn't know who this person is. He's stripped naked. Nothing about him defines clearly who he is. There's no expectation of reciprocity. He's just showing compassion. Because the guy needs help. Because what? If that were to ever have happened to him, that's what he would want for someone else to do for him. As a good neighbor, the Samaritan makes costly sacrifices of time and money, sets the guy on his animal, leads him to an inn, provides further medic medical attention, pays money for long-term care, at least for a couple of weeks. And then what else does he do? He says to the innkeeper, hey, if there's any additional cost, Put it on my tab. It's like giving your unlimited credit card and saying, if there's anything else, charge it on this. There's no limit to the extravagance of this person who's neighboring this man in need. Who does this? You might, you might say, and you know what? I know a person who gave their car to someone in need. Actually, I know someone 
who did that. I know people who have given their homes to someone in need. But that's like once, maybe twice, maybe three times. Even if you could do it ten times. But the radicalness of the call from the word of God is that we are to live like this completely all the time. Who does this? Can anyone live this way? Nobody. Not you, not me. But the love we see from this Samaritan has no limit, has no boundaries. And that's the point. That's what Jesus wants this lawyer to see. That what? This lawyer, his boundaries are way too small. He hasn't lived anything close to what God expects or demands. Maybe we'll do it for our family, our parents, our significant other, but do we know anyone who lives this way all the time? And Jesus responds, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Remember, Jesus is switching the question. The guy wanted to know, who is my neighbor? He's, Jesus is switching. It's like, to whom will you neighboring? He can't even say the word Samaritan. He says, well, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus says, well, you go and do likewise. You know, when we follow Jesus, we are expected to take up the cross and follow after Jesus, not to pay for anyone, but that's part of discipleship, following Jesus, right? But the parable here isn't about, it's not trying to teach that. We all, if we're honest and courageous, need to admit that we don't love like that. We can't love like that. I can't love God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength all the time. And I certainly can't and don't love everybody around me in the way I love myself. Now, if he had said, if he had confessed, Jesus, I can't, forgive me. Kind of like fast forward chapter 18, Luke, the the tax collector who's beating his chest, unlike the Pharisees, like, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, because I can't live to that perfect standard, Jesus would have shown mercy. But this guy still doesn't get it. Until we are convicted by the holy, holy expectation and standard of God, we will never be humble enough to receive the gospel of Jesus The response of the man and the response of Jesus, I just want to point out, remember the verbs I mentioned before in the beginning? When the lawyer uh, responds to Jesus' question, out of these three, you know, who proved to be a neighbor? He responds by saying, the one who showed mercy. Now, that's what it says in ESV. But actually, the word for show is the same verb. It, it's basically, literally would be translated, the one who did mercy. Same verb, poesis. 
And what does Jesus respond? Well, go and do, poe, likewise. Do it. To emphasize that he can't do it. And he needs someone else who can alone do it for all mankind. It's to show the futility of our doing as if we can be justified by what we do. We can only be justified by someone else. And that someone else is Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I want to close with this closing thought by asking the same question that the lawyer asked and a similar question that throughout the New Testament people asked. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? There are only two choices. Either we can live perfectly, fulfill the requirement of God's law, and stand right before God. Live perfectly, love God perfectly, love others perfectly, and you will be in right standing. But we don't do that, and we can't do that. And as Apostle Paul reminds us in Romans 7, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. It's meant to bring us running, chasing after the only one who can make us right. Maybe some of us are trying to live as if we can meet that requirement. But Jesus wants us to acknowledge that we can't. You know, people have used this parable to make you feel guilty about not being as generous, not taking care of people. But the parable's purpose is not to make you or me feel guilty, like we're not giving money enough money, we're not helping enough people in the street. That's not the point of the parable. You know what the point is? The point of design of Jesus in sharing this story is to convict us, make us feel guilty for not loving God perfectly and loving others, neighbors perfectly, so that we would run to him who alone can provide the forgiveness of that sin and grant us eternal life. The good news of the gospel is that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, what he did, God graciously gives forgiveness to law-breaking sinners like you and me who are not good neighbors. When Peter preaches the first sermon in Acts 2, so many people are convicted He didn't have to do an altar call. They came to him and they asked, what shall we do? What shall we do? And you know what Peter said? Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Are we convicted? Are we asking God, what shall we do? What should we do? How can we receive eternal life? Repent, be baptized, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. 
And I'm going to close with the final story from Acts 16. When Paul and Silas are in jail, um, there's a great earthquake, and they're set loose because that's what God wanted to do. And the jailer, the Philippian jailer, is freaking out because under Roman law, if you lose your prisoners, you'll be executed. So knowing that there's an earthquake, all the prisoners are set loose. They are able to go. He's about to take his life. And Paul tells him to stop. Don't take your life. We're all here. We're all here. And what does the jailer say? What must I do to be saved? And what do you respond? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Brothers and sisters, are you asking, what must we do? What must I do to be saved? Believe, trust in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Let us pray.